In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, Father, as we, begin, as we begin this Lenten season, we ask you to bless our various activities that we undertake, especially our prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And we always do these things out of love for you. May we say no to good things in order to say a greater yes for the best, which is, of course, you and your holy will. Guide all of us, enlighten our speakers, and help us, Lord, to really take in what you want us to take in as part of our lives and to live that out with great love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There is nothing like having contact with great saints who have been considered doctors of the church. And when they help us by being veritable physicians of, of the soul, they help us to understand what our maladies are, and they help us to understand, too, the prescription for us in order to become more holy. And so this is a series that I have actually been kind of waiting for for many years, and I'm very excited that we're having it tonight. Tonight we have Dr. David Deedle speaking on St. Augustine. He is the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, and visiting assistant professor of Catholic studies at the University of St. Thomas. Dr. Diebel received his PhD in Historical Theology from Fordham University in 2011. He has published and spoken extensively, especially regarding the thought of Blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman and G.K. Chesterton. You may have read his regular column in our local newspaper, The Catholic Servant. He is also Dr. Diebel's fourth, I'm sorry, this is also Dr. Diebel's fourth time presenting at our annual St. Agnes Lenten Lecture Series. As I mentioned, he will be starting off this series of great spiritual doctors or spiritual masters, the intellectual giant and pastoral monk, uh, bishop as well, of course, St. Augustine of Hippo. Please welcome, Dr. Evil. I'm glad to be, uh, be here speaking to you tonight. It's good to begin Lent in Minnesota because we have so much snow that it's not hard to imagine suffering. Um, I'm also glad to be back speaking again because I've been told I give a lot of suffering to people. So This is actually the first time I've ever spoken about St. Augustine publicly, not you know in a sort of general way, but in a talk, um, which is kind of strange because I've always considered him kind of my patron in a way. Um, when I came into the church, I took him as a sort of patron. Uh, our first son is named Philip Augustine Devil, and he goes by Gus. Um, uh, he's always been there, but he's always been in the background, and he is a giant. Um, he's a giant in the history of the church and in the history of theology. I think it's fair to say that next to Thomas Aquinas, he's probably the biggest figure there is. Um, there's probably nobody who's played such an outsized role in exploring the faith once for all delivered unto the saints other than this North African bishop. The 20th century philosopher Alfred North Whitehead once said that the history of Western thought is simply a series of footnotes to the work of Plato. And historians of theology and of doctrine have said that's pretty much what you can say of Augustine. There's nothing that he didn't touch and there's nothing that has been talked about with regard to the faith that he's not a part of. Yaroslav Pelikan, one of the great 20th century historians of dogma, said that like Aristotle, Dante, Goethe, 
Augustine is one of those figures who's a kind of encyclopedia of thought in and of himself. He wrote over a hundred books, uh, no small matter in the days when we didn't have word processing. Um, and he had hundreds of sermons, many of which were copied by stenographers. There's an old saying, mentitur qui se totum legise fatetur. He who says he's read everything he wrote lies. <laughs> From St. Benedict of Nursia, Boethius and Gregory the Great, to Abelard and Anselm, Bonaventure and Aquinas himself. From the Council of Trent, Calvin, Descartes, Rousseau, Pelican observes, all of these people were working off Augustinian ideas, for good or for ill. And in the few, last few centuries, there's been no end of other figures as well. I think probably one of the greatest Augustinian thinker of our times is Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. My own subject of special study, uh, soon to be St. John Henry Newman, of course, had a very Augustinian cast to his mind. And he was always very much aware of the power of sin, but also the power of God to deliver us in all things. One of the most famous moments in his, his uh, account of his own conversion story was when he was beginning to read about the Donatist controversy of the 4th century, 4th and 5th century, in which Augustine was very much involved. The Donatists were a group who had broken off from the Catholic Church because in the Decian persecution of the end of the 3rd century, some of the bishops had failed, and when they repented, they said they no longer have the power to do these sacraments. And Augustine had to fight against that idea, and through that fight, he was able to come up with an understanding of the sacraments as ministered to by Christ himself, rather than the people involved. <clears throat> when he was reading about this controversy, uh, he uh, he was suddenly struck by a phrase that Augustine had, and that is the phrase <clears throat> that the whole earth judges securely. Uh, Newman saw that Augustine's Catholic bent was such that he understood where the Catholic Church was. I suppose the history of Augustine and the Catholic Church and Newman and the Catholic Church is where my own story comes in. Of the Protestant Reformation, B.B. Warfield, the 19th century Presbyterian theologian, declared it inwardly considered just the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. Now, whether this is really accurate or not, it was and is certainly a point of view widely held and probably best represents my first impressions as a Protestant many years ago. My father, a Protestant and a graduate of Chicago's Moody Bible Institute, uh, did not speak of many theologians before Luther and Calvin, but he did speak of Augustine. And he always pronounced it St. Augustine, like the city in Florida. Um, I like the young Augustine, uh, kind of, kind of a, a, a jerk, uh, you know, sense that you were supposed to say Augustine, not Augustine, and I always did that just to annoy him. <laughs> but what my father found in reading the Confessions was a man who lived coram Deo, in the very face of God, trying not to hide himself as we all do, imitating our parents in the Garden of Eden did when God comes around. 
I still have my father's copy of the Confessions, uh, most likely purchased when he was at Moody in the 1950s. It's a paperback copy of the translation by John Henry Newman's friend Edward B. Pusey, with an introduction by a Jesuit, Harold Gardner. What my father wrote in the front and back covers is as follows. Every work shall be brought into judgment, every prayer, every impulse given. Now, the first part of this line is a quotation from Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. My father's put a star before the words, and then he's underlined it. And then underneath the underlining, he wrote this. How strange that the Holy Spirit should sovereignly choose to use a verse, rather two verses, which were direct commands to Christians in the quote-unquote saving of Augustine. Strange, too, is that such a climactic conversion should see the church plunge into at least a thousand years of darkness following it. The judgment seat of Christ will bear me out, but my guess is that Augustine was a saved man before his conversion to Catholicism. <laughs> you can, if you want to, believe that God offered Augustine salvation only in or through the Roman Catholic Church. I don't believe it. There are too many whosoevers in the Bible that makes it false reasoning. Now, you can, you can hear in my father's uh, you know, tone here what Warfield was talking about when he described a triumph of Augustine's teaching on grace over his teaching on the church. That is a kind of separation of Augustine's understanding and grace and scripture from his understanding of the church, the sacraments, indeed the nature of salvation. But Augustine didn't separate his teaching in such a way, which explains the fact that Augustine did indeed say that his own true conversion came after reading Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, a passage that was indeed directed at Romans who were Christians already. And I'll say a little bit about those words in a bit later. But Augustine didn't consider faith simply as an interior acceptance of Jesus and as Lord and Savior as an individual. But it was an act that took place in the church and involved the response of faith. Augustine didn't consider faith to be alone the important thing, but essentially he thought, as St. Paul did in Galatians 5 verse 6, that it's faith working through love that was most important. St. Augustine took St. Cyprian's line Outside the church, there is no salvation as a reality, though he allowed that some in the church would not be saved and that some number outside the bounds of the church would in special circumstances. It was again Augustine who helped the church understand the validity of the sacraments and that it was not tied to the worthiness of the minister. Christ, the true minister, <clears throat> is the one who makes the sacraments work. Ex opere operato, as the church learned to say, because they've been done and not because the one doing it is particularly holy or a miracle worker. Augustine taught strongly the doctrine of a purgatorial fire after death for those in Christ whose sins were forgiven, but who had not been fully made holy in this life. Now, all of these things I came to believe were not only not opposed to his doctrine of grace, but were requisite parts of it. God's grace is sovereign, and it acts in the church not on the basis of the holiness of individual priests and bishops, but instead on the basis of the simplest fidelity in performing the rites. That makes it more dependent on God, not less. It acts to make people part of the body of Christ by baptism, and not on the rather shaky foundation of whether one really meant it when he prayed to the Lord for salvation. It is God's grace that he does indeed complete the work that he began in his servants, even if they die still somewhat curved in on themselves by sin. That's Augustine's image, by the way. Incurvatus in se, 
bent in upon oneself. That's what sin does to us. It makes our own very lives a kind of prison. Lent, of course, is the time when we're working to turn towards the Lord and to unbend ourselves from whatever is making us bend in. Some of you are sitting there with your smartphones going, what? I don't get it. No, I'm just kidding. That's not actually a sin. Uh, but it might lead to one. Well, that, that's what I could never quite get over about my father's insistence on writing things like, every work shall be brought into judgment. What exactly does this mean if there's no purgation? Lots of people die without having had anything brought into judgment. They don't have time to have that chance to, to repent of the Lord, as many saints pray for. Right? That's an oddity about Christians, is that we pray for a good death, meaning not a quick one and painless. But instead, we want time to prepare for it. Because we know that it, a good death doesn't depend upon our bodily state. That's kind of ugly no matter what. But it depends upon the disposition of our souls. We often get away with those sins in an external way, but they disfigure our minds and hearts, bending us in upon ourselves, smartphone or no. Now, one might say that in the act of death, there is a purgation. But again, most of us don't have that opportunity. Now, Augustine's doctrine of purgatory is part and parcel of his doctrine of grace, which is intimately connected with his doctrine of the church. Now, that other comment of my father's, the one about how odd it is that Augustine's conversion seemed to be the precursor to a thousand years of darkness. Well, I find that to be partly true as well, but it's not, as my father seemed to believe, that the Catholic Church went off the rails and became apostate in some way. But it is true that Augustine was there at the end of something big. That big thing was called the Roman Empire. Scholars call the time in which he lived late antiquity. It was the end of an era. And afterward, there was indeed a set of dark ages, not because of Christianity, as many secularists say, not because of Catholicism, as, as many others say, but instead because civilization was collapsing. And it was indeed the church that saved what was left of the antique world. You've probably seen that book, How the Irish Saved Civilization. That's one of those particular sort of ethnic, you know, self-congratulatory paths. I have Irish in me too, don't worry. Um, but it really wasn't the Irish, right? It was the Irish monks. It was the church that valued the things of eternity and thus could see the value of the things that were in the world that were good. Perhaps Augustine's greatest work, The City of God, which was finished in 426 when he was 72 years old, looked at the common argument made after the sack of Rome by the Vandals in 410 and the general overrunning of the empire by Germanic tribes, many of whom still held the Arian heresy, that Christianity was what had weakened the empire. And that's what many historians said. The famous Gibbon historian said, that, that's what ruined the empire. Christians made it weak and sissified. Augustine said, no, that's not actually what happened. He argued instead that Christianity actually made the empire strong and that it was paganism and moral corruption that made the empire weak. He proposed that Christians had a better view on what history was than the Romans did since they understood that the history of the world was indeed a battle between two cities with two different loves. The city of man, what the New Testament calls the world, basically, bare human nature, which without God often turns beastly. 
was one. It's dominated by the false desires of the flesh. Libido, the kind that we always think of when we think of libido, but also libido dominandi, the lust for domination, the hatred that is always out there. This is the city that's founded by Cain. The city of God is that heavenly commonwealth that has loved God and has accepted his revelation and responded to it. It is only finally and fully present in the afterlife, but we can experience in part in this age in the church insofar as we live according to God's commands. It's the city founded by Abel, the just. Augustine saw the darkness descending in his own time and urged his readers not to be fooled by the material and technological progress of his time into thinking that, well, this is the city of God which has come in. The Romans have roads, aqueducts. That's great, but that's not salvation. We're not to place our hopes in princes or progress of any kind. The end of the world may come with a whimper or it may come with a bang, but it will not be the crowning of a world in which you've got to admit that things are getting better, better all the time. <laughs> Our human history, as the noted Augustinian scholar John Ronald Rule Tolkien put it, is ultimately a long defeat. We're not going to win in the end, but instead we still have to fight and wait for God who brings our salvation. While we have the duty to work toward the good of our earthly home, we always have to remember that it's not our final home. Indeed, at the time of Augustine's death, the Vandals had laid siege even to the city of Hippo in North Africa. They called off the siege briefly about the time of his death, but they later returned to burn the city. They left only two things standing, Augustine's cathedral and his library. That to me is more emblematic of the truth of the situation. What happened was that Augustine's faith, meaning the Catholic faith, and his works, meaning his writings, were what kept the candles burning during the ages of upheaval. I think there's much that we, who live in something as grand and as decaying in many ways as the Roman Empire, have to learn from St. Augustine about faith, politics, and the vagaries of history about the need to work and do what we can for, for good, but also to remember that we are passing through and our salvation comes not from any programs or any even virtuous actions of our own, but from God who comes from above. But I'd like to turn in the time we have to a look at that work that my father wrote his notes in, the Confessions, about which one of my teachers said, once said that if it wasn't Augustine's greatest work, it's certainly his best known work. And I'd say that it is probably also his most loved work. Don't get me wrong, Augustine's works are filled with masterpieces. Pelican, the historian of dogma whom I quoted earlier, said that if Augustine had written only one book out of many half a dozen of them, he would have been remembered as a genius. The City of God, On the Trinity, Free Choice of the Will, On Christian Doctrine, any of his commentaries on Genesis, the Psalms, John, the sermons, sheer brilliance in the service of faith. But in the confessions, we meet a man who is not one of those plaster of Paris saints that we sometimes find in our children's books. John Henry Newman once said that if anybody ever wrote a biography of him, he'd want it to be a real downright account. 
Augustine, in a way, wrote his own real downright account of his life. And that's where I think much of its power is. Who was he? I've been talking a lot about him, but you're like, is he the guy from Canterbury? No, he's the one who wrote a hippo. Yes, and there's a, there's a restaurant in St. Paul and a bar. Yeah. Um, he was born Aurelius Augustinus on November 13, 354, in the Numidian town of Tagast. The Aurelius doesn't really mean anything. It just means he was a, a Roman, so they wanted to give him a cool Roman name. It's modern-day Algeria, and he was the son of a non-Christian retired Roman soldier, a burgess of the town named Patricius, or Patrick, and a Christian woman named Monica. His parents were legally Romans, but they were most likely ethnically from the Berber tribe. They would have spoken Latin at home to show that they were proud Roman citizens, but they would have probably also known Punic as well. He had at least two siblings, a brother and a sister. And at the age of 11, he was very bright and went away to school in a nearby town for four years or so, returning in his 16th year <clears throat> to, while his father raised money for him to go to school in the big town of Carthage. While in Carthage, he took up a concubine and became an unwilling father at the age of 18 to a son named Adeodatus, given by God or gift of God. He later fell in love with this boy in the next year, despite the fact that he had not wanted this child. And at the same time, he fell in love with philosophy after reading a book of the Roman philosopher Cicero. He returned to Tagast that year to start a school there. Now, at the same time as he had discovered his love of philosophy, he found the answer, Hare Krishna. No. <laughs> But it, it was kind of a Hare Krishna of the time, the Manichae faith. It's really not really Hare Krishna. It's really more like a combination of Star Wars, Scientology, and the Mormons. Um, they had an elaborate mythology with this dualism between light and dark, and there were midichlorians. No, I'm sorry, that is Star Wars. <laughs> Um, and they had this sense that you know you had to you had to get the light out and abstain from things that were material. Um, you know they had this doctrine that light was imprisoned in fruit, and so the inner circle of the Manichees, you would they would be allowed to eat the fruit, and then they would belch forth you know deities and things like that. I mean it's crazy stuff, but <laughs> he's an intellectual, and there are some things that only an intellectual can can find plausible. <laughs> I speak as an intellectual. <laughs> um, as many Gnostic sects were, they, uh, they had a thing about sex as well. And because it was a bad thing, you were supposed to abstain. But because you were going to do it anyway, the worst thing you could do, you know, for Mani's sake, was don't have any children. I mean, that's the interesting thing. He had this child unwillingly. He didn't have any children after that, even though he lived with his concubine for about 17 years, which means that he probably practiced some form of, of birth control. Now, after nine years of this, Augustine grew disillusioned with this group and moved to Rome to start a school of rhetoric there. Um, rhetoric is how to influence people. Uh, basically, uh, you could think of it as a kind of combination of... Uh, one of those, uh, you know, how to win friends and influence people things and law school. And he basically was trying to teach people how to win their case. A guy who'd committed to philosophy, but he wanted you to know how to win no matter what. 
At a later point, we'll, we'll notice that that was something that bothered him. <clears throat> the next year, he was appointed to a professorial chair in Milan, where he came under the influence of Bishop Ambrose, known to us as St. Ambrose, who was a former Roman governor and an intellectual himself, somebody with the intellectual heft to kind of convince Augustine. At this point, he left his longtime lover. He sent her away, and she went back to North Africa, and he became engaged to a young heiress of Milan, a 10-year-old. He had to wait a few years until she was legally allowed to marry because the age of marriage was 12 at the time in the empire for girls. <clears throat> in the meantime, he was not willing to wait that long, and he took up another concubine. Again, this is part of the story. But by 386, he had become convinced of the truth of the Catholic faith. And in 387, he was baptized along with his son at the Easter Vigil in 387. And instead of marrying the young heiress, and instead of sticking with the second concubine, he decided that he was going to live a life of celibacy as a monastic and perhaps a priest. His mother, who had followed him to Italy, famous Monica with her tears, who always longed for her son to come to the, to the, to the faith of the church, uh, was with him. And on their way back to North Africa, she died in a town called Ostia. Adiodatus died in Africa the following year. Augustine had now lost two of the closest people that he had. And he was ordained as a priest in 391. He caught the attention uh, of many of the, the African uh, bishops because he was a really smart guy and he was good at rhetoric. And he had a pretty dynamic story to tell. Um, he was consecrated bishop and made coadjutor in the Numidian city of Hippo Regis in 395. There was an older bishop named Valerius who was a Greek who wasn't very good at speaking Latin, and now he had this young guy who could kind of do things for him and preach. Valerius got this done, and after a year or so, he made his way across the Jordan, and Augustine became the ordinary of Hippo Regis, where he stayed until his death as bishop in 430. He remained there teaching, sanctifying, and governing all that time. Now, the Confessions was written shortly after that time of becoming a bishop. Most scholars think it was from 397 to a 400, so he's in his mid-40s. Perhaps at the instigation of a bishop friend, Paulinus of Nola, who had been himself a former Roman senator and provincial governor, who'd had a conversion experience, and then had become a priest and bishop and was now the bishop of a diocese in southern Italy. He had asked Augustine for a history of his own story and the history of monasticism in Africa. Augustine, whether he wrote it because of Paulinus or for other reasons, did, did, uh, did write it down, and it's composed of 13 books. Augustine said about it at the end of his life when he was looking back at all of his works that in these books they praise the just and good God for my evil and good acts and lift up the understanding and affection of men to him. At least as far as I am concerned, they had this effect on me while I was writing them and they continue to have that effect when I am reading them. What others think about them is a matter for them to decide. Yet I know that they have given and continue to give pleasure to many of my brethren. 
The first 10 books were written about myself, the last three about Holy Scripture, from the words, In the beginning God created heaven and earth as far as the Sabbath rest. Now, what most people fall in love with are those first books in which Augustine talks about his own life, and that's what we'll spend most of our time talking about. But not, I think, because they are about a man's confessions and not about God. You know, our sense of confessions these days is telling people on Twitter, right? It's telling other people. But that's not what Augustine is doing in this work. Instead, the book itself is addressed to God throughout. It's not dear reader, but it's you, O Lord, right? We like to begin with I, I, I and me, 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 right? He begins with you. They're about how this man who wrestled with God ultimately had God prevail over him and bring him in to his own life. About how a man who was laid low and lifted up eventually came to see that God was with him all the time, ready to have his love accepted and be loved in return, but always waiting and ever-present help in trouble. The Confessions are a treatise about God's grace. And Augustine is, among the doctors of the church, known as the doctor of grace. He's also the patron of brewers, but some of you think beer is graceful. That's fine. <laughs> but he really is the theorist of grace, and his story is about grace. What's his message? That God guided me through all those messy years, living with those women in this cult, being in the big city and being successful and finding that he was just as empty as before. And he delivered me, and he can deliver others too. They're not just a tract about getting saved or entering the church either. As I said, they're addressed to you, Lord. They're a confession. And confession in his day had a threefold meaning, not just tawdry tales about oneself or sins, but instead... A confession of praise and a confession of faith as well. Confessions might have a dominant sense of sin in the first books about his journey leading up to his intellectual and moral conversions in books 7 and 8. But wrapped in around all of those confessions are the literally wonderful parts where Augustine is addressing God with a childlike wonder. That one is sure is what our Lord meant when he said, let the little children come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Augustine became like that little child. The very beginning of the book, as I said, doesn't begin with the I of modern confessionals, but with the you, which dominates liturgical prayer, with the confession of praise and faith before jumping into the sinfulness of man. This is the great beginning of the book. You are great, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power, and to your wisdom there is no limit. And man who is a part of your creation wishes to praise you. Man who bears about within himself his mortality, who bears about within himself testimony to his sin and testimony that you resist the proud. Yet man, this part of your creation, wishes to praise you. You arouse him to take joy in praising you. For you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. The beginning of a thousand-mile journey, Confucius said, begins with a single step. 
Augustine is showing us with this beginning that the first step in a journey of grace is the recognition of the good God in whom alone we can find true rest in a life that often seems exhausting but doesn't have a point to it. A life that seems so pregnant with possibility but empty in its delivery. We live in an empty age like that. I read every week the news and I see the statistics about how people are killing themselves with booze and opiates and by guns and all of these things. What's the crisis? It's a crisis of meaning and it's a crisis of rest. And until we find God, we don't find that rest. Augustine continues for several books in this vein, talking not about himself, either for good or bad, but about God, the one who's beyond our categories, the one who is poured out upon us without being cast down, but instead when he pours himself down, he lifts us up. He's the one who is unchangeable, but he changes everything. He's the one who is always active and yet ever at rest. He's full of love, but not inflamed with passion, angry, and yet tranquil. We can speak a million words about God and never scratch the surface of his truth, his goodness, or his beauty. Because God is, of course, beyond description, but also because we're so small and so wretched as creatures, so incapable of taking in the source of goodness. Too narrow, he writes, is the house of my soul for you to enter into it. Let it be enlarged by you. It lies in ruins. Build it up again. Bent in upon ourselves, we often can't take in the love of God. We are buildings in ruins. And we lie in ruins when we're apart from God. And that starts early. At this point, Augustine does begin to talk about himself, but not necessarily his memories, but about infancy describing the various stages of de development from that infancy all the way to adulthood. He marvels at the reality of his own being at a time before he can remember how God fashioned him and made him and gave him food to eat through his mother and through nurses. He was how as a toddler he began to cry to express his wants, flailing his limbs and trying to make sounds to express what he wanted. Now the parallel to his inability to speak about God is quite deliberate, I think. When we speak about God, we're often flailing about and saying what we want, and we don't quite know what we want because we aren't big enough and we don't know the language. He wonders at how the mystery of sin was present even in the tantrums of a toddler. I will not serve, says my three-year-old. <laughs> and no. <laughs> And he wonders at how sin was nourished when he could begin to speak the words that made his wants understood and he entered into what he called the stormy society of life in which adults don't always teach the right lessons. You know, there's something very strikingly modern in Augustine's descriptions of his fourth century North African childhood and youth too. Now, he doesn't blame all of his misdeeds on his parents, but he does complain that his mother, the Christian, Monica, held off having him baptized in the hopes that he would sow his wild oats and convert later. He complains, too, that when as a late teenager and he'd begun to enter the storms of passion accompanying puberty, his parents neither encouraged him to think about marrying nor to think of a celibate vocation, 
they, especially his father, were too fixated on his success in school and his future career to want him to think about settling down. Even his mother took this path, and she thought, well, maybe doing well in school will lead him to find the Lord somehow. Very modern, isn't it? We think much more about our kids' resumes than their souls. So too his teachers, who were more interested in the polish of his wording than in the truth of his words. His teachers, who would punish him for skipping school in order to go to the shows, but only because they wanted him to do well and maybe be in showbiz later. His teachers who taught him the great pity of characters in stories, but not the pity of his own soul that was far from God, who taught him that winning was really the most important thing, such that he would cheat in games and lie to get his way. Is this boyish innocence, he asks? It is not, O Lord. It is not. I pray you, my God, that I may say it, for these are the practices that pass from tutors and teachers, from nuts and balls and birds, to governors and kings, and to money and estates and slaves. Some people's kids. Some people's parents. And they usually go from one to the next. Augustine sees that those bent motives of youth, especially if encouraged by adults, will continue their way right into adulthood. People get to adulthood and think, why am I not better than this? It doesn't work that way. That a disordered mind and heart seeking after pleasures, honors, and truths outside of God will end up in sorrow, conflict, and error. The very path that he would take as a young man. He discusses his teenage confusions between love and lust. He says, I was in love with being in love. We know what that's like. The desire to be seen as an even greater sinner in this arena, the locker room talk that people mention. Now, what's odd is that he seems a little bit more fixated in the confessions on a youthful incident in which he stole some rotten pears from a neighborhood tree simply for the thrill of doing it more than, any, than, than anything else. He sees in this act, though, something profound about true sin, that it is at its heart a rebellion against God, just as in the Garden of Eden, an attempt to be, God, be like God, quote, by doing with impunity things illicit, bearing a shadowy likeness to your omnipotence. That was the temptation to be like God. And when he steals those pears, because I can, it's a, it's a cheap imitation. Now, rather than sulking about how his parents and his teachers done him wrong, however, Augustine gives thanks for his childhood. He thanks God not only for the forgiveness that he's received, but for keeping him from worse evils. He notes that God was never far from him, even when he was far from God. He says that God is, quote, more inward than my inmost self and superior to my highest being. If it seems like God is far away, who moved? So too with this time in Tagast and Carthage, where he talks about more sins, carnal and spiritual both. It's not just lust, but it's vanity and pride all coming together in a potent mixture of heedlessness. He even reports that he once attended 
mass in church in order to arrange for what we might call a hookup with a young woman. And yet amid all this, what does he see? That God was having mercy on him as he sought for God without knowing it, even in the beauty of the senses, even in the midst of his sins. He sees that the bitter fruits of his sins are not just the just punishments either, but they're also the means by which God affords us his mercy. So to the death of his friend in Tagast, Augustine recounts how wretched he was upon the friend's death. Filled, he says, with both weariness of life and a fear of dying. Again, doesn't that sound like our age? It was a sense that he wanted to escape, quote, away from my heart. Bent in upon yourself, it's very difficult to escape yourself. As my father-in-law says, wherever you go, there you are. And the gift of God, he thinks, is quite often this pain. The pain of mourning, the pain of feeling the bitterness of sin. It wakes us up to the reality that our problems are far different than the ones we imagine them to be. We realize, as he did, that it's quite often the fact that we don't love too much, but that when we don't love people, and our own lives and beauty and things in God, we really don't love them enough. Augustine's adulthood is filled with these realizations too in his story. His time with the Manichees was a long period of wandering in which he says when he was speaking about God at that time, he barked like a dog against you. And he imagined a God who was material. That's the kind of the Mormon element to this. I suppose the Star Wars one too after that movie where they int introduced the midichlorians. But he had, he had this notion that God had to be material and it limited him. And he wandered around trying to figure out how it is that the true God could be a spiritual being. Even after he left the Manichees, it was a painful time for him. Once bitten, twice shy. He became a kind of skeptic, worried that he'd fall into another intellectual and spiritual sham. <clears throat> he'd hit the big time in Rome and Milan, though, despite the fact that he lived this disordered life. You can still be successful, right? Practicing alcoholics, right? Functional alcoholics, functional sinners, that's what many of us are. He was starting to live the American, excuse me, the Roman dream. <laughs> Honors, wealth, promised marriage to an heiress, fame, fortune. And yet he was miserable. Seeing a stumbling drunken beggar one day in Milan, he wondered why it was that the beggar seemed more joyful than he was. He realized, well, the beggar just says good luck to people and they give him a drink. I teach people to lie for a living. How he wondered was he going to live that philosophical life. He looked back on that time when he was 19 and he read Cicero's book and decided that he was going to live for the truth. He was going to be a philosopher. Eleven years later, he's teaching people to lie and he's envying drunken beggars. He was attracted by the truth of Christian faith. His mother, whom he had abandoned in North Africa, finally found a boat across and came to, came to, to uh, live with him and keep 
begging him to take seriously his soul. He made a commitment to live in God at one point, but he regrets, he, he says, that he had made no commitment to die to himself. Not quite possible, is it? This is obvious when he sends that concubine back to North Africa in order to prepare for his marriage, but then takes up the, the new concubine. He experiences God's revelation in a flash of light at one point. Seeing, quote, the invisible things understood by the things which are made. But he says he was unable to keep looking at them. His gaze couldn't be fixed. His soul was a wandering soul. He decides that God is calling him to baptism, finally. He's making progress. And he thinks maybe even God wants to give him a celibate life, and he wants to commit to that. But then he utters his famous line, Give me chastity and continence, Lord. But not yet. <laughs> and yet, in the midst of all of his struggles, in the midst of all of his misery, he keeps finding that God provides just what he needs at the right time. The bitterness of the sins, the sadness at his friend's loss. The problem with thinking about God as a spirit is solved when he discovers some books of the Platonists. St. Ambrose's preaching gives him a vision of the faith that's coherent and strong. And he realizes that his real problem is a problem of the will. That his will is divided. That he cannot effectively act to do what he now sees as the truth. Augustine realized that he could not convert, turn toward God in faith or obedience without divine help of a serious sort. And this is what he depicts as happening. He gets to a point where he is weeping because he just cannot kick any of the habits that he has. He's sitting there in a garden saying to the Lord that he wants to move past his lusts and desires for sex and fame and honor and wealth. And he says, the floods burst from my eyes, an acceptable sacrifice to you. Not indeed in these very words, but to this effect, I spoke many things to you. And you, Lord, how long, how long, O Lord, will be angry forever? Remember not our past iniquities. For I felt that I was held by them, and I gasped forth these mournful words. How long, how long? Tomorrow and tomorrow, why not now? Why not in this very hour an end to my uncleanness? In book 10, which we won't talk about, he talks about memory and our capacity for memory. And he says that it, memory can be a tomb, right? When we build up habits, whether they be good or ill, they become a kind of second nature. And if they're bad ones, they become a kind of second dead nature. And he knows that he cannot defeat that on his own. There is no philosophical text. And so what happens next? He hears a child's voice chanting, Tole lege, tole lege. Take up and read, take up and read. And he thinks to himself, are there any kids' games like this? I don't remember any. Step on a crack. You, no, that's not it. Uh. <laughs> he sits there and thinks about it, and then he thinks, I think that the Lord wants me to do something. And he realizes that he has a copy of St. Paul's letter to the Romans sitting over in another part of the garden. And he runs over to it. And he opens it up. 
And he reads the first thing that he saw. Those lines that my father thought were so odd since they were addressed to believers. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He had been enchained in his memory and his addictions, as we would say, to fleshly delights, which really weren't very delightful. And it wasn't a reasoned decision, but a movement of the will to do what God commands in the arena of his life. It was the voice of that one who is more inward to me than I am to myself. And its power moves mysteriously through a child's song and a chance opening of the Bible. Everything about Augustine's story tells us that it is God's grace that allows him to accept the truths of the faith and also to hope in God, to have that desire for the ends that God has for us. It is God's grace that allows us to love what he loves and to obey what he wants us to do. It works slowly. And it works over the course of many years in many cases. And it's our job to keep up with that grace and beg, as Augustine did, in the garden for more grace. Now, any other notion of grace but one that is moving us toward Christian perfection is a false one. Today, too many Christian believers, Catholics, Protestants, everybody, want to make grace out to be less powerful than it is. They would rather relax the standards and celebrate the resulting comparative high achievements. Augustine's story is one that teaches us the opposite. God is always around us. He always moves before us. His grace, as the Council of Trent said, is prevenient. It's always coming ahead of us. We can't get out ahead of God. And it's moving us not simply to an easy life of belief in him, of half-hearted Christianity, of, you know, a good enough Catholics, but it's instead moving us to offer our whole lives to God, whether that means celibacy and monastic life or being a bishop, or whether it means to enter fully into the lives that we're already living in a family or in a job or with friends who are difficult to deal with. They need to hear about Jesus, and they need to see the power of his grace in us. He's calling us to hear him and to do heroic things. Now, we don't have time to take up all of Augustine's thoughts about creation, time, and eternity in the later books of the Confessions. But it's useful to note that what he ends the book with is, is describing that peace of God, the Sabbath that we're called to. It is the reality of what it means for our lives to be lived under judgment, every aspect of them. Because our lives are meant to be cleansed and made pure and stand, coram Deo, in the face of God, living in the reality of that mysterious and infinitely good, true and beautiful presence that we are still learning how to talk about and even to receive. What man, he says, will give it to a man to understand this? What angel will give it to an angel? What angel to a man? 
From you let it be asked, in you let it be sought. At your door let us knock for it. Thus, thus it is received, and thus it is found, and thus it is opened to us. My father died about five and a half years ago. My prayer is that through the great saints' prayers, he has entered into that peaceful rest, and that together they'll be praying for my arrival some point too. But in the meantime, I'm going to continue to listen to Augustine, the spiritual master, who bids me not to settle for less, but instead to call out, to weep, and to beg, how long, O Lord, how long? Make me what you want me to be. And that's what I hope you all do, too. Thank you. We have just a few minutes, about 10 minutes for questions, and um, if you would, if you hear the questions, please repeat them so everybody else can hear them as well. Yeah, Mickey. Is there an easy read? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He has a YouTube channel. No, I'm just no, I, you know, I think the Enchiridion on Faith, Hope, and Love is a good one. It has a fancy title, but it's really like Catechism of the Catholic Church version Augustine. And I think it's, I think it's a good read. Um, I think uh, on Christian doctrine has, is, is fairly easy, too. Um, some of his sermons are really, really good and easier to read as well. I wouldn't start with, like, the City of God. It's, you know, that's, I mean, that's... First of all, it's like 9,000 pages, and you got to know all about Roman history, and you know the entire yeah. But but I think that I think that his Enchiridion on faith, hope, and love is a good place, and I think the sermons, yeah. Brandon might have views on that too. Anybody else? Yeah, Ron. Can you tell us about um, Ambrose, Ambrose influence on? Yeah, so St. Ambrose, as I mentioned, was himself a, a, a provincial governor who had um, had a conversion in midlife like, like Augustine did. And he, uh, I mean, he has an interesting story. Essentially, he was a catechumen, and when the bishop died, they were like, okay, we want this guy as the bishop. And so they seized him and dragged him in. And he was like, I'm not even baptized yet. And they're like, we can take care of that. So I was like, you know. He had like nine sacraments in a row or something. Um, I, think, I think the math is wrong there, but you, you, you know what I mean. Um, but he, Ambrose was an intellectual, um, and he, he was a philosopher like Augustine was. There was, a, there was an influential sort of group of Christian intellectuals who, had, uh, who studied Plato and the Neoplatonist writers, and Ambrose was among them. So when Augustine came to, to Milan, what he found was, here's a lot of really smart people who don't have this problem with God as a material being or any of this stuff. And he didn't get to know Ambrose very well, uh, but he heard him preaching. And that was, that was you know, it was sort of by, uh, by taking in all of that that he, that he got to know Ambrose's mind. Um, but there were some other priests uh, around in uh, Milan who really had an influence on Augustine. Uh, but Ambrose mostly did it from afar, but he was the one who baptized him in 387 at the Easter Vigil.
Yeah. I wrote a, I read a book uh, several years ago by uh, Louis DeWall uh, called The Restless Flame, and it was a very moving, kind of a historical fiction a little bit, but it's a very moving book about Augustine. You kind of get to know him yeah. through that book. Yeah, I've not read that. That's on my list. Um, I've read a number of biographies of him, and there are some very good ones. Um, Peter Brown did one, uh, Gerald Bonner. There's one by Serge Lancel, um, all very good. There's, a, I mean, there's a million books on, on Augustine. But um, I, I, yeah, I've not read that, that, uh, that novel, but I've, I've heard that it's very good. So. You can't help but have tears when you read him on his litter in his room with the psalms yeah. all around him and, and he's you know he can't see and he's blessing people and they're being healed and, and, and the war is going on around him yeah. and uh, it's quite a moving account at the end. yeah he I mean he had that preparation for death that he prayed for and so he asked them to hang the psalms up around his bed the penitential psalms and pray those and make his peace with God. And as you say, he was, he was right there in the midst of the battle as everything's collapsing around him. That's why I like that detail that the vandals didn't burn his cathedral or his library. Because what survived the Dark Ages was, was, not, you know, was not the Roman part, but it was the Christian part. And he was a big part of that. But Louis de Waal, uh, The Restless Flame, is the novel. So, so I got my homework for tonight. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah, Luke. How, when he's doing his work, doing his writing and doing his research, or whatever they called it back then, how accessible was copies of the Gospels or even the non-canonical uh, stories from the time of Christ? Yeah, by the fourth century, we have you know the Codex. You know what we think of as a book is now common. Um, so it's not like you know they're pulling out scrolls anymore. Um, so there, it was actually fairly common to have all of the text available. And Augustine was interesting because, I mean, one of the reasons why I sympathize with him is even though he was a brilliant Latin scholar, he writes in the Confessions about how he had a hard time with Greek. And he, he eventually knew it fairly well, but he never, he never learned Hebrew, and uh, so he you know, occasionally he, would ha he had a 20-year correspondence with St. Jerome, who's probably the patron saint of grumpy people. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Augustine would offer him advice as Jerome was doing the Bible. And he's like, oh, you ought to use the Septuagint, the Greek translation, uh, you know, as the basis of, of your version. And Jerome, who knew Hebrew and never let anybody forget it, was like, you've got to be kidding. What are you talking about? Um, so, but there were plenty of texts around, and Augustine did know a lot of them. He had a, he had a fantastic memory for things. And I mean, what's interesting, you know, I, I said to Mickey, you know, read the sermons. What's interesting is that he didn't write his sermons out. He preached extempore, you know, from the pulpit. And basically what happened was they had professional stenographers who could take these things down. And they were pretty good. You know, they had a system of how to do this. Um, such that, uh, you know, my Augustine scholar friends tell me that for some of them, you'll get like two different tra you know, transcripts by different stenographers, and they, they almost, they're almost entirely the same. Um, 
So, you know, so some of those things he didn't actually write himself, but of the other books, he sat and did them. And this was on top of a heavy life as a bishop. Um, you know, I mean, I said that he teached and sanctified and governed. And I mean, he did literally govern as well. He, you know, he settled disputes. People would come to him to have things adjudicated. Um, and he supervised. He was, he, uh, you know, he had his priests live with him in a kind of monastic community. And so he was kind of giving them advice. Um, one of the amusing details, I mean, that shows that, you know, again, he's not a plaster of Paris saint, is that in, in his, the, the bishop's household, everybody who lived there got a certain amount of wine per week. But, you know, on the principle of the swear jar, if somebody heard you swearing, you know, Father so-and-so does not get a draft of wine this week. Uh, so he was, you know, he was, dealing with, uh, he was dealing with his clergy and he was dealing with people all day long. And he, he kept up this vast correspondence with political leaders, military leaders, scholars, and monks, and everybody else. Um, so he's, he's quite a remarkable figure in that, in that regard. I'm not even sure what you asked, but I, <laughs> I just kind of got carried away. Something. Right. Who else? Anybody? Yeah, Rachel. Yeah, this is after. So, I mean, the, the persecutions, the Roman persecutions largely ended by about 313. Um, and then after that, there is the mid-4th century term of Julian the Apostate, the Roman Empire who, Emperor who wanted to, like, turn back the clock and do things old school, uh, which meant pagan empire again. So he put some onerous rules on the church, but there wasn't much outright persecution. What Augustine had to deal with in North Africa was this Donatist community, which was effectively as large as the church was. I mean, again, it's something that makes us, you know, think, well, things are not, you know, things are not much different than they always were. We think, well, before the Reformation, everything was like hunky-dory and it was one church. No, there wasn't. Um, the Donatists had, um, you know, they had their own churches and they celebrated the liturgy exactly the same. You know, the only thing they disagreed on was basically who the bishop was. And they, so they were a, literally a schism. And this is, what, this is what motivated John Henry Newman because he was an Anglican in the 19th century saying, well, we're just like the Catholics, exactly like the Catholics. Then he reads about the Donatists and he's like, oh, so were they. Um, and the Donatists, you know, I mean, like any, um, like any uh, you know, like any spiritual group, it has plenty of religious nuts. Um, had a group called the Circumcellians. They were sort of like the shock troops of Donatism, and so they would like go around to people. And Augustine, in one of his letters, tells about something that happened to somebody in his community that he was beset by these, these Donatist shock troops, and they were like, all right, you, you're going to martyr us, or we're going to kill you. Um, I'm, not, I'm not really sure about the logic on that one, but... <laughs> But the guys that they set upon were certain about it. So they're like, oh, okay, we'll martyr you. All right, you know, here, can you bend over? We're going to tie you up and cut your head off. So tied him up and whack, 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 whack. Go martyr yourselves. Um, so, you know, that, that's the kind of violence that he had to deal with. Um, and, and, and eventually, one of the things that he decided was to, whether to use 
Roman um, imperial uh, troops to sort of quell riots and suppress the Donatists. And that's a decision that you know you can sort of agree or disagree on, but, but that was what he was dealing with rather than the old pagan persecution. Thank you. Uh, next week, next Friday's lecture is St. Catherine of Siena by St. Agnes' own Sister Mary Margaret O'Brien, OP, who is with us tonight by the Pellegrin. Sister, could you stand up? So, Sister will be talking about St. Catherine next week. Thank you for coming, and thank you again, Dr. Diebel, for the wonderful presentation.